Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And the following episode is being republished from the Canadian Medical Association Journal's podcast series. CMAJ's podcasts are just terrific. I listen to a lot of them. They concern medicine and society, clinical practices. They have interviews with doctors, interviews with scholars on new books concerning medicine, the history of medicine, the practice of medicine, Pretty much everything somebody interested in healthcare might be curious about. They're extremely well produced, very professional, and I highly recommend them to you. To find CMAJ's podcasts, what you need to do is just go to Google and type in CMAJ and podcasts, and that will take you right there. And I encourage you to subscribe. I hope you enjoy the following interview. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the author of an interesting Medicine and Society article about the personal narratives of people who have been diagnosed and treated for breast cancer. The article is published in CMAJ. Amelia Nielsen is an Assistant Professor of Arts, Medicine and Healing at York University's Health and Society Program, Department of Social Science. In her article for CMAJ, she questions whether there might be a better way when it comes to patients sharing breast cancer stories. I've reached Amelia in Toronto. Welcome, Amelia. Thanks, Dorian. Happy to be here. So let's get right to it. You've done a lot of thinking around the problem of how we talk about breast cancer. And what's your take on on the current state of breast cancer narratives as we commonly hear them? Well, I think right now, in 2019, which is different from 10 years ago when I started this research, that we're really in a moment where there is a shifting terrain um, around how we talk about cancer and, and breast cancer specifically, which then, of course, influences the kind of stories um, or narratives that those diagnosed and treated for breast cancer tell and then share publicly So if in the past there was a sort of standard script that became commonly acceptable, I think right now we see all kinds of different narratives and we see and witness narratives from those perhaps we didn't expect to tell a breast cancer story. So can you tell us a bit more about this concept of a standardized breast cancer narrative? Right. When I first started this research, as someone who has not been diagnosed and treated for breast cancer, who instead someone who has witnessed this really life-changing event, not only among friends of my mother's, but um, more recently my, my partner's family, I was sort of grappling with this culture that seems to have formed around breast cancer. And really, it's not seemed. There is a culture that surrounds breast cancer. 
And I was struck at first by the emotional culture that surrounds breast cancer. And by this, I mean a culture that espouses optimism and hope, uh, cheerfulness, which for me seemed a bit surprising given that a diagnosis of cancer comes with it many conflicting uh, emotions, including difficult and perhaps negative emotions. So in the early days of the research, I encountered an article by Judy Siegel, someone that's previously contributed to this section of the journal, who studies the, the rhetoric of health and medicine. And she really identified a, a kind of rhetorical trope um, in breast cancer narratives, something that she identified as the standard story of breast cancer. And as I remember it, she identified this story as going something like, I found a lump, I was scared, I went to my doctor, I discovered, in fact, it was cancer, I was diagnosed, I was treated, it was difficult, I endured, I persevered. In some ways now, I'm better than before. And that's an interesting story, right? Where it always seems to implicitly end on, on a happy note, on a positive note. And for me in studying story, I think about all the stories that don't quite go like that, um, or the ones that don't end on that kind of easy end note. Um, and I, I think there are many stories out there that don't have that kind of formulaic telling. So what I wondered about, as, as Siegel does as well, when this becomes the dominant narrative, what does it do to those that want to tell a different kind of story because their own experience is different? What does it even do to those that maybe want to tell a, a happy ending story, but feel that if they diverge from this, this standard story, that somehow they're not telling the breast cancer story correctly. And I think that's something we should probably all be invested in, in disrupting or questioning um, at base, I guess. Well, you know, as a psychiatrist, I find that really fascinating because, as you know, one of the problems in psychiatry are the standardized categories, the standardized ways that, that people learn to listen and as somebody seeking help, you sort of feel you've got to conform to a certain kind of distress in order to be heard. But in my own practice, I'm really aware that some people get cut out of that that story. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kinds of stories that are getting cut out, like when we focus on standardized breast cancer narratives. Right. So like I say, I think that things are shifting and I would be... I would be remiss if I didn't note that, that since I started this research, certainly, um, and even, I mean, the book has just come out now, which I guess is the the capstone of this, of, of my own particular research. But if I look back to, and in this, and, and in my work, I do look retrospectively. So in, just at the turn of the, of the, of the millennium with Barbara Ehrenreich and Welcome to Cancerland, thinking about that article, which for so many of us was this 
whoa moment. She's saying out loud what uh, patients are thinking. And she wasn't saying it out loud. She's writing out loud. She's writing publicly about being conflicted, about being angry. And in that article, she very much calls out many norms that could be potentially damaging within breast cancer culture. Um, Certainly the infantilization of women and she turns to the pink teddy bears and those kind of trappings, I guess, of culture, as well as the commercialization. And she's very much articulating there the beginning, I think, of a very robust critique of pink ribbon culture. Um, But she tests the limits of breast cancer culture when it comes to uh, feelings when she goes on to a message board, uh, presumably for breast cancer survivors, and says something like, I'm angry. I'm angry, not so much at being diagnosed with this disease, though it's awful, I'm going to (laughs) say, and the treatments are hard to endure, but I am doing that. I'm enduring them. I'm angry that I am being called to be a survivor before I've even survived anything. I'm angry that I'm being initiated into a kind of sisterhood or a culture that I've had no say in the initiation process. Um, And she was very, she very quickly was schooled or told by women on that particular message board. And this is now probably nearly 20 years ago, that anger had no place in this culture, that that anger would not help, that anger could only be damaging. Um, And Aaron Reich was really suggesting that if we've learned something about about women's health issues or or from the women's health movement that anger anger can be mobilizing it's it's how you use that anger that becomes important so probably there is nothing detrimental to your own healing process if your anger is directed towards say, the lack of research into the environmental causes of breast cancer, or your anger might be directed towards what's become more of a corporate relationship towards um, the research and study of, of cancer, and that patients are feeling that there's been limited um, success in terms of advancements when it comes to the standard protocol for treating breast cancer. So anger can be this mobilizing force. Why is it not allowed in this discussion um, among those diagnosed and treated? What is so dangerous about anger? And why can't we think differently about anger, particularly in relation to breast cancer? Now, that's a a fascinating question that you're raising. And by the way, you just referred to your book, which I'm going to mention later. But listeners who don't know, uh, you recently put out a book called Disrupting Breast Cancer Narratives, and that's available through University of Toronto Press. But this story of anger is fascinating as a mobilizing force. And I'm wondering, because our our listeners are practicing physicians, Mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering if we can go beyond the breast cancer narrative, if you can talk about how we could use that knowledge, perhaps, in medicine and healthcare more broadly. Yeah, well, that's a really, <laughs> that's a really big um, topic. And certainly, it's something 
that I have thought about also outside the kind of confines of this research on, on breast cancer narratives in my own experience of being a, a patient Here's what I've sort of come to know about anger where where patients are concerned. I think that it's much more difficult to treat and work with angry patients. And I say that because for myself, um, in those moments when I've been in the doctor's office and I'm extremely frustrated, uh, dare I say, angry about something that's going um, on, usually it's not directed towards my physician at all. It's usually structural. Maybe it's a delay in a requisition, a missed uh, fax where I'm now not able to see the clinical specialist at the timeline that was set up, something like that. I have found myself both a bit inarticulate in my anger. And at times I found myself extremely articulate in my anger. So, so anger isn't one thing. I think it requires a different kind of, of listening um, when you are in the presence of, of an angry um, patient. But the part that I think that something it might be missed really is that anger is always detrimental. Uh, I think anger is difficult. <laughs> I think anger can be hard to bear witness to um, in patients, but I don't think it's detrimental to a patient's healing to be angry. Maybe it's not as sort of pat as a, as a stage um, in the process of, of becoming patient. But certainly, um, it can make things happen. And that's also something that I, I've recognized about my own anger as a patient. At times, it does make things happen. So I wish that breast cancer patients were given more permission um, to tap into some of the potential that anger provides and certainly when I think about um, a documentary like Pink Ribbons, Inc., that's really well articulated in that documentary. And certainly someone like Samantha King, um, who wrote um, the book, uh, Pink Ribbons, Inc., to which the documentary is in conversation with, she really reminds us that that anger has been this motivating and mobilizing force in many social justice movements because anger is actually well balanced with other kinds of emotions in the public protest of something. So perhaps we identify anger as being the thing that is wrong at the expense of of recognizing how it's balanced with hope and optimism or despair and sadness that that actually anger is maybe loud and anger is quite recognizable. Um, but I certainly know it's only one of the tools that patients use really um, in their clinical encounters and use probably in their own healing. Have you ever had a chance to talk to doctors about how they feel when they encounter someone who's angry. Um, I don't I know your work has focused mostly on on the people who are going through breast cancer, but i'm I'm wondering what the flip side of it. No, I wonder too. You know, that wasn't part of my my project. Um this project really was limited to 
um, engagement with published narratives. So narratives that are already in the public realm for consumption and conversation. And so when I talk to doctors, mostly I talk to doctors as a patient. Mm. And it, uh, because they know that I do um, health research or or well, work more in the health um, and medical humanities, um, it's this informal um, exchange. But I'm really curious. Um, again, it would only be anecdotal sort of things that I would reflect on here in terms of um, how doctors deal with anger. But, I mean, what are some of your observations? Because um, I'm sure you absolutely engage with this in your practice. Very much. And I was I was thinking about a few things that came to mind. One being in my training as a psychiatrist, uh, one of the, the sort of standard stories that was passed down was that, you know, the concept of anger as an emotional equivalent to depression, which was interesting. And that's hugely gendered. And, and the idea being that that men tend to express anger and women express depression and sadness. Mm -hmm. And so I, I mean, uh, I'm trained to try to in interpret emotions. It's difficult to have somebody directly angry in the office. And, yes. and it often becomes almost like an emergency situation that can disrupt your schedule and uh, as, you know, in, on multiple levels. Uh, but it also becomes an, an occasion to, I think, deepen the relationship with the individual once you've worked through what that is and once you've shown that you can uh, endure or sustain that anger. So I've seen it as an occasion to communicate more deeply, but it's more work, I find. It's definitely more work to, to, to deal with a, a patient who is expressing anger. Yeah, that resonates so strongly with me um, that that it really is this occasion for a, a deepening um, relationship. And as you say, it takes more work and it takes different types of, of skills. Also, what resonates really strongly with me is this gendered aspect of, of emotion. So if in your clinical training, there was already this um, gendered expectation around the way that, I guess, in a gender binary, men express anger, women express sadness, um, then that very much filters into our expectations of patients. And I think that's part of the root why it can be so discordant to encounter an angry breast cancer patient, not because women are not angry and not because women don't have something to be angry about where cancer is concerned, but because it's discordant with our expectations, not only of women, but of this disease that's become highly codified in its gender presentation. Um, there's a real set of norms that have been established partly through the corporatization of breast cancer culture and the pink and the optimism and all of that type of, of messaging. So in my own research then, encountering this moment that, you know, that others have so clearly identified, whether it's Barbara Ehrenreich or others, I really wanted to turn to the past to not only remind myself, but ultimately in the, in the end to, to remind readers 
that this is not the only story of breast cancer. And if we turn to the era more identified as the beginning of the politicized patient and someone like Audre Lorde and the cancer journals um, writing through the late 70s, early 80s, the cancer journals is a, a very angry book. It's an incredibly well-informed book. It's an expansive book. Her insight into the way that breast cancer culture then was operating with shame and secrecy and the reason to speak out against that became a template that we could have used when it comes to speaking out against the now really over-determination of, of hope and positivity. So we've shifted the terrain, but the dominant messaging really has remained quite strong um, from then to now with different expectations. So there have always been angry breast cancer narratives. Um, they have been there, but it doesn't seem like right now those are the ones that are always reflected on and circulated. Instead, it's that to return to the beginning of the conversation, one iteration or one version of the standard story of breast cancer. Amelia, this is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's a wonderful example of how health and sickness are inherently uh, entangled with with politics, with gender and with with power relations and expectations that we have in those relations. And that's all the time we have today for this podcast. But I hope you can come back at some point and perhaps even expand on this point. Yes, I'd love to join you again for for a longer conversation or a different type of conversation. And I'm always happy to talk about um, breast cancer narratives. I've been speaking with Professor Amelia Nielsen. Professor Nielsen is an assistant professor of arts, medicine, and healing at York University's Health and Society Program, Department of Social Science. She's the author of Disrupting Breast Cancer Narratives, Stories of Rage and Repair, as well as two collections of poetry, Body Work and Surge Narrows. She also wrote a Medicine and Society article for CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>